New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. We at New Dimensions thank you for your support. It is only through a change in human consciousness that the world will be transformed. The personal and the planetary are connected. As we expand our awareness of mind, body, psyche, and spirit, and bring that awareness actively into the world, so also will the world be changed. This is our quest as we explore new dimensions. In Siberia, no matter how bad the situation was, we felt loved and safe within the family circle. We loved each other and were dedicated to helping each other survive. My grandparents and my mother's courage and their faith in our ultimate survival were quite remarkable, especially in contrast to the overwhelming sense of defeat and hopelessness that existed all around us. And so, from inhospitable, desolate Siberia, I learned that love, courage, and faith can and do defeat fear. These are the words of our guest today, Andrew Biankowski, and his amazing life story serves as the focus for this edition of New Dimensions. Andrew Biankowski and his family ultimately emigrated to the U.S. in 1948. After graduating from high school, Andrew joined the U.S. Air Force, in which he served for four years. He went on to earn an M.S. in clinical psychology and began a 40-year career as a psychologist often connecting with institutionalized patients who had been deemed hopeless. Since his retirement from clinical practice in 1996, he continues to teach classes and lecture on topics as diverse as overcoming fear, dream interpretation, and organic gardening. He also volunteers at his local hospice, providing compassionate end-of-life care for terminally ill patients and their families. He's the author, with Mary Akers, of One Life to Give, A Path to Finding Yourself, by helping others. Join us for the next hour as we explore how being grateful for life's most difficult experiences can make us stronger, wiser, and more empathetic to the suffering of others with our guest, Andrew Biankowski. My name is Michael Toms. I'll be your host. Welcome to New Dimensions. Andrew, welcome. Well, very good to be here. Nice to have you here. Andrew, one of the most compelling stories in the book is the story of your grandfather dying. And in the words I think were um, in the book, where his job was to die. Tell us about that. It's really Can you describe that story to our listeners? Yes, um, we were there probably for uh, several months, and we were very close to starving to death. Uh, the Russians, when they came to Poland in 1939, deported more than a million Polish people to Siberia. And I think we weren't supposed to survive. We were supposed to either starve to death or uh, freeze to death. And uh, my grandfather, at some point, decided that he was going to stop eating and that this would be the way how he would help the, his two grandchildren survive which was my brother and I. I was five, my brother was three. And he made a decision that this was his job, this was his function to help us survive. 
And so we had a very difficult time accepting this. I have a very clear memory of this. But we somehow accepted that, uh, that he was going to stop eating. In effect, we lived in one tiny little room, and we watched him die for, I don't know, close to two weeks probably. And uh, there was something that happened. His last words, they were... Yes, yes. Yeah, talk about that. Uh, Before he died, he had his last wish. He said, bury me naked. And the family was shocked. I mean, you know, this was something very, you know, unacceptable. But then he explained very briefly that he wanted us to take his clothes and sell them so that we could buy food with that money. And again, very reluctantly, we accepted that. And so we did sell his clothes when he died. And we buried him naked. This was considered as a possible title for the book, but then after consulting many people, (laughs) it was decided that it wasn't acceptable. But actually, at some point, this was uh, considered as a possible title, Bury Me Naked. (laughs) And and then there was this wanting to... to, um, uh, bury him. So, and the f- ground, of course, was frozen. So, tell us that that story of going out and and, and burying the grandfather. Well, the ground was frozen, so we had a very difficult time digging the grave. It was a very shallow grave, and after the weather warmed up a little bit, we were going to go back and rebury him in a deeper ground. And what we found was that uh, the wolves got to him first, and we found evidence that he was eaten by the wolves, which is something that not too many people can say. How many people can say that their grandfather was eaten by the wolves? Yes, and, and when you found, it was like interesting because you were looking, when you went out looking for the body, and, and I think it was the daughter, grandmother, his wife, your mother, and you and your brother. Mm-hmm. And... And you were looking, through, looking for, and then you found. I think, I think you, one of the, you think you found that saw something, and then followed the path of, the, and it turned out the wolf had dragged your grandfather into the brush or something. Now that's a different story. I think there's a story that after. I think you're you're talking about the story after my grandfather already died. Yes. His wife, my grandmother, would have dreams, and in those dreams, he would give her specific yes. instructions how right. to find food. And so I remember again very clearly how I was only six years old then. Uh, my grandmother said to me in one morning, she says, "Look, we have to get dressed and go very quickly, because my husband told me where we're going to find food." And so we. And he also told her that you would be the one that you knew where the, where you picked the strawberries. Yes, yes, yes. Because I used to pick strawberries. That yes. was my contribution to the family survival, you know. Uh, and so we went there, followed the directions, and we found this calf that was killed by wolves. It was still fresh. Must have been killed very, you know, maybe an hour before that. And we dragged it home, and we had food for quite a long time after that. But wolves played a very interesting part in that whole story because just like, you know, those two stories about my grandfather being eaten by wolves and wolves killing the calf for us, uh, they kept entering into the story and they almost became like a mystical animal to me. And uh, in some ways they helped us survive, I think. Uh, I remember, for example, in a very, very cold winter, when you could hear the wolves howling right outside the door. And uh, 
And people in the village would say, don't go outside because the wolves will get you. So people wouldn't even dare go outside. They came right up to your door and just howled all night long. I can still hear that sound today. Yeah. Yeah. And also, it was incredibly unusual for a wolf to make a kill like that and then leave the carcass. That was unusual. That was very unusual. Very unusual. Um, My family were very religious people, and they believed that uh, our survival in Siberia was really uh, a series of miracles. They believed in miracles, how we survived and how my father found us. Eventually, uh, my father was allowed to leave Siberia because for political reasons. He was part of the Polish army. And they were going to leave Russia and go fight against the Nazis. And the soldiers were told that if they could find their families in Siberia, they could take their families with them. Of course, the the Russian government would not help in any way. So again, how my father found us was like one chance in a million. That's Uh, another story. I'd like to get to that later. But (laughs) but before we get to that... um, before you, you know, before you were banished in, in, in I guess this was 19, you know, 1938. So you remember 39. the village that you were in. Talk about that, where you lived, and 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 I think your father was a lawyer. Your in Poland. In Poland, yes. yes. And and your mother was a uh, uh, very beautiful woman. Yes. I mean, you have pictures yes. of her in the book. Uh, so talk about that time. What was that before like? the war? Yeah. Well, you know, we were part of what in Poland would be referred to as the Polish intelligentsia, the middle class, maybe upper middle class, uh, well-to-do. My father had a very important job with the government. Uh, We had servants, and so we were quite well-to-do. And when the war started, Poland was invaded from two sides. The Germans came in from one side and Russians came in from the other. This is something that a lot of people don't remember, that at the beginning of World War II, the Germans and the Russians were allies, really. Yes. And the part of Poland that was taken over by the Russians was where we lived. You know, So we ended up under Russian occupation, basically. Yes. And my father was, of course, in the reserves, and so he ended up being in the war. He fought against the Germans, and he was eventually captured by the Russians. And he was a prisoner of war in Russia. Um, and so... Uh, and your mother, I think, was basically, what was the name of the village, the, the town that you lived in? In Poland? Yeah. It was a large city. It's actually uh, called Lwów. 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 It's a large city which is no longer part of Poland. After World War II, the boundaries were adjusted, changed, so that that part of Poland now is part of Ukraine. So it's no longer part of Poland. But it was a large, one of the three largest cities in Poland, actually. Yes. Um, and we, we've always lived in the cities uh, several times because my father, as part of his job, was working for the government. He was moved quite often. So we lived in several Polish cities. So when you were um, evacuated or basically transported, it was in a cattle car. Talk about that experience. A cattle car for three weeks. Yes, it was, it was really a nightmare. I mean, I even hate to talk about it. Yeah. <laughs> it was such a terrible experience. Yes. Um, what they did, the Russians would load these cattle cars. And this is the middle of the winter. It's like January. Yes. Very cold winter. They would load this whole train. And this happened many times. It was like a million, more than a million people. They loaded up the train with people. I mean, packed like sardines. There wasn't even enough room to lie down. Yes. And no food, no heat, no water. 
And for three weeks, we were transported that way until we finally dumped in Siberia so many people in each village, so many people in each neighborhood. And during that trip, many people did not survive. Uh, they either died of starvation or they died of, you know, they froze to death. My family, because we knew that we were sooner or later going to be picked up, we were definitely on that list, you know, that the Russians took people who were educated, people who were yes. uh, middle class, people who owned any possessions, any property. And so we were expecting that sooner or later they were going to come for us. So we were prepared. And uh, we took some food with us. And we took some warm clothing with us. So we survived that trip, but many people didn't. Yeah. They would stop to train every day and... Uh, take all the dump, dead bodies and dump them in the fields. And then they would continue the trip. There were soldiers with guns so that if you try to escape, they would shoot you. Uh, and this was like three weeks, like a three-week nightmare. Yes. And then when they dumped you in the, I think when they finally dumped you in the village, it was quite a ways from the village. You had to walk to this village. And it was a communist village. And you were like just, you know, so it was kind of like they probably expected you to die. Yeah, we they did. They did. And uh, the way we survived is really what the book is all about. Because yes. my grandmother and my mother and my grandfather uh, all uh, were extremely creative and inventive and came up with ideas. We, In fact, the original title for this book uh, was Helping Each Other. Before I uh, started working with my co-author, who's a wonderful writer, Mary Akers really deserves an incredible amount of credit for this book. She's the writer. I'm just a talker. <laughs> I could talk, but I can't write. So anyways, so um, they, um, uh, let's see, I, I lost train. So. Well, we'll come back to it in a moment. Uh, <laughs> okay. I'm speaking with, with Andrew Bienkowski. He's the author with Mary Akers of One Life to Give, A Path to Finding Yourself by Helping Others. My name is Michael Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Andrew Bienkowski, and he's the author with Mary Akers of One Life to Give, A Path to Finding Yourself by Helping Others. And we're talking about your trip, um, going from being you know, taken from the town, Lvov, uh, to the Siberia. And one of the things your grandmother packed, because you, you planned for this, she packed a pack of cards yeah, and that pack of cards turned out to be an amazing little piece in your in your yeah, in your survival. Was, that was one of the things that uh, was amazed everybody because she was so creative. What she decided at another critical moment when we were 
very, very much close to starvation, uh, that she would go and stop at people's houses and offer them if they would like to hear their fortune told. So people would invite her in, she would spread out the cards, tell them their fortune. Now, you have to know that she knew nothing about this, so she was just <laughs> a good actress. <laughs> and uh, they would give her a carrot or a potato or a piece of stale bread. So this was another method how we obtained food and how we didn't starve to death. Well, she became the, vid the village fortune teller, in effect. Yes. But there was something that she she was at some point uh, thinking, concentrating, and, and, and the cards were in front of her, and she saw, I believe it was the Queen of Diamonds, and she got some revelation from the Queen of Diamonds that, oh, you know, and she started talking, started practicing telling fortunes to, to, I think, to the kids, right? Yeah, I have a very unclear memory of that, but I do remember that she would practice on us first before she would go out. She would uh, look at different cards and, and see what each one of them meant, what each one of them communicated. Yes. And, you know, to some extent, I'm not sure if maybe she did have some ability to tell fortunes. You know, to this day, I'm not really sure. She claimed that she didn't, but I suspect that she might have. She was a very unusual person. You know, her dreams and her insights and her wisdom were way beyond what a normal person would have. She was a real, real special human being. Yes. She eventually went, she, after you came to the U.S., she eventually went back to Poland because she wanted to, she yeah, didn't want to, yeah. she wanted she, to live she, in her native land. She, she said to us, she announced to the family, she was in her 80s by then, announced to the family that, uh, she knew she was coming close to the end of her life, and she did not want to die in a foreign country. That's the way she put it. She said, I, would, I don't want to die in a foreign country. I want to go back to my country. And she went back to Poland. Fortunately, there were still quite a lot of Polish. We still had quite a few relatives in Poland. So she was able to stay with them. And my brother and I, who at this point already were earning an income, were able to send them enough money so that she was very comfortable for the next, I think, two or three years. Yes. Right. She wasn't happy. I have to say that her letters were rather sad because she recognized that she was living under communism. Poland at that point was still under the communist system, and it was like going back to communism. She was, yeah. So she was not happy. So tell us, so when you, when you were able to leave Siberia, um, and you wound up going to several places on the way, talk about that, what, what happened. Well, let's see if I can make it real brief. Uh, the Russians were more or less pressured by the Allies to release those Polish troops that they were holding because they were told, look, these are Polish soldiers that will fight against Germany, who's our common enemy. And even though the Russians didn't want to do it because they wanted to, <laughs> they didn't like Poles, whether they were Allies or not. But they were pressured to release those Polish troops. And... Uh, they uh, allowed them to take their families with them. Yes. So my father was able to find us, and we left Russia with him. So during the war, we were like military dependents, basically, well supported by the British government. The Polish troops, which was a fairly large number, it was like 100,000 Polish soldiers who fought against Germany all during the war. Yes. With the British. They were yes. equipped by the British. Yes. And we were very comfortable living in Iran first, then Palestine, and then eventually England. 
When the war was over, we ended up in England, and that's when I first learned to speak English. It was, was when we arrived in England in 1947. Okay. I, I learned to speak English, and when we came here a year later, I spoke English the way it is spoken in England, and nobody believed me that I was Polish. They said, no, you're not. You're English. <laughs> I spoke English the way it's spoken in England. <laughs> it took me about five years to get rid of my English accent. <laughs> <laughs> so so then what happened? You got to this country, and so what was happening now? Well, I went to high school. Uh, when I graduated from high school, the Korean War was still going on. And so at that point, uh, I was very much anti-communist and strong feelings against communism. So I joined the Air Force because I wanted to fight communism. And uh, I served in the Air Force for four years. Unfortunately, I didn't end up on flying status. And I found out much later that because I wasn't a citizen. And if you're in the military during a wartime especially and you are not a citizen, uh, they don't really trust you with all kinds of secret equipment. And all the stuff that were used in the military, like in the Air Force, where a lot of equipment was secret. So they, I could not get into flying. Yes. So yeah. what happened? What did you do? I ended up working as an office kind of say. I ended up being a sergeant, staff sergeant. Uh -huh. And when I graduated, I mean, when I finished with that, I went to college, Union College in Schenectady, New York. Then graduate school, Western Reserve in Cleveland. Uh, then I ended up in Buffalo, New York, working as a psychologist for the state of New York. Uh, various outpatient clinics, inpatient, state hospital, but uh, basically serving uh, the less prosperous people of New York State, uh, services that were provided by the state. And your brother, he actually got a job as a professor. Well, he worked for most of his life as a professor at Princeton University, and he was killed in an auto accident when he was in his 40s. Tragic. Yes, it was very sudden. He was a very prominent, well-known professor at Princeton University. What did he teach? What was his focus? Um, astral... Uh, Physics, as it's related to outer space, he was involved in in a study of how particular molecules would behave in outer space. Astrophysics? Yes. I think it's called mm -hmm. astrophysics. Astrophysics, yes. Astrophysics, yeah. He was like, um, fairly well-known in this country in his field. So you, you, it's interesting. That you're, you're Also, your mother died pretty young. What happened? Well, when we came to this country, she was not well. She was uh, part of the family that was never really quite recovered from the Siberian experience. So she was not well. I think she died after we were here for only about three years. Um, I was still in high school, in fact, in Utica, New York. It must have been hard. Very difficult, yeah. Very difficult. And then my father died when I was still in college. So, you know, really... Uh, all the people involved in this ex Siberian experience died fairly quickly. I, I've, uh, I've been really missing them quite, quite a lot in all these years. Sure. Yes. Uh, yeah, such a, uh, such a powerful Syrian experience as a youngster to get all of that and then to carry that with you over the years. But you've, you've really 
turned it into something uh, valuable and blue And that comes to the book. Uh, what is radical gratitude? What is ra- ah, radical gratitude? You know, that's the question that's often asked. You know, we've Mary and I have had appearances probably, I would estimate, around 40 different appearances, various organizations, churches, uh, colleges, universities, high schools. Yes. And that's the question that's often asked. And what I usually say is that it's easy to be grateful for those things that are good. You know, something good happens to you, and it's easy to be grateful. What I teach is that it's the very difficult, painful, awful experiences that are probably the most valuable because they teach us the most important lessons. So when I look at my Siberian experience, I'm grateful. I'm grateful for those experiences because I probably learned the most important lessons from that experience, from Siberia. And uh, I I think that uh, this is something that a lot of people have a hard time accepting. Uh, I was speaking to a young woman the other day, and she says, well, you know, Andy, um, I haven't had any difficult experiences in my life. My life has been very easy. Uh, So how do I learn these important lessons? (laughs) Also, too, just uh, the idea that... um, something out of suffering uh like in some ways like pain is always with us but uh, as the buddhists say suffering is optional um it's like how you see it how you perceive it and uh somehow you've been able to uh perceive your experience and, and turn it around for yourself and that's pretty amazing yeah it's interesting because in one of my recent uh presentations at Canisius College in Buffalo, uh, there was a woman in the audience who confronted me, right in front of her, like 50 people. She said to me, uh, I went through the same Siberian experiences as you did. And she said, "And how could you forgive those Russians what they did to you and your family? How could you forgive them? And she was angry. And I had a difficult time explaining that forgiveness is an essential ingredient in mental health. Uh, I've seen this with so many patients that once you can forgive, it becomes much easier to be mentally healthy. It's like letting go of pain, letting go of suffering, letting go of anger. And uh, she, on the other hand, having listened to her, my impression is that she's still suffering. She's still angry. She's still very cynical. And she's still in Siberia. I was able to forgive, I was able to let it go, I was able to hold on to those experiences and see what I could learn from them. I've actually crystallized an interesting uh, concept from working on this book with Mary for two years, and this is how it goes. What you remember from your childhood, or what you choose to remember from your childhood, and how you choose to interpret that determines who you are today. And that kind of, that, this is what the book is about, really. What I chose to remember from Siberia, and I know I chose those memories, specific ones, and how I chose to interpret those memories determines who I am today. Yes. And your mother had such a powerful, basically your mother kept alive hope. She used to take you out and look at the sun, the, the sunsets yeah. and the colors and the flowers in the spring and how beautiful things were and yeah. and so you always had this she was always providing hope 
which is really important. Very important, essential. You know, what we find out in Siberia and what I found out from other people who've gone through similar experiences, concentration camps and holocausts and so on, that people who give up, who lose hope, usually die very, very quickly. Yes. That in a sense, having hope, striving, believing, going on is a, an essential ingredient in survival. And we never gave up hope. My family believed that they were going to come out of Siberia. We found a lot of people around us, didn't? And they didn't come. They didn't survive. No, they didn't. Yeah. I'm speaking with Andrew Biankowski. He's the author of One Life to Give, A Path to Finding Yourself by Helping Others, co-authored with Mary Akers. My name is Michael Toms, and you're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Andrew Biankowski, and we're talking about the book One Life to Give, A Path to Finding Yourself by Helping Others. Uh, Andrew, again, I just, you know, have just so struck by your mother, whose name was Sosha, beautiful name. Uh, one of the things she did, it's a great story, uh, where she somehow got assigned to work with cows, and she didn't want to work with cows. She didn't like cows, right? And And... And so she goes to this, I guess, the farm, the collective farm, and the, she goes to the, and this first, there's this huge cow, it's like, and it's like, you know, it's just laying there, she doesn't want to deal with it, talk about this, it's a great story. Well, she had to learn very quickly, you know, because the other workers uh, would kid her about it and joke about her, and she had to learn very quickly how not to be afraid of those cows and how to handle them. I mean, she was a city person. She was a person who never had probably seen a cow. Back home, she had servants who would take care of everything. So this was like a huge shift in her, <laughs> yes. in her environment. And so cows were very frightening to her. And she, she was terrified of cows. So somehow she got through that. She got yes, through that she fear. Did. She survived it. Yeah. And that was uh, quite an accomplishment for her. It also helped um, to provide, uh, again, provide sustenance to the, to the family. Yeah, we would get some of the byproducts from the farm. You know, like the, they would make uh, cheese or butter from the, from the uh, milk. And then the stuff that was left over was very often fed to the pigs, but we were somehow able to smuggle it out or were given it to us by some of the other workers. Uh, potato peelings. I mean, a lot of times people would peel potatoes and throw them away. We would get them and cook them, and we we ate things very often that other people would throw away or that were intended for pigs. Yes, yes. Uh, <laughs> that's pretty wild. Mm. Um, yeah, the, also there was another way going... Yeah, one of the dreams, you're, again, I think it was your grandmother's dream, or go to town, mm -hmm. go to town mm -hmm. and Yeah, I, I remember that. I yeah. remember that. Yeah. Now, this is, again, the way my grandmother tells the story. She would not talk about it as a dream, really. We can look at it as a dream, but she would say, my husband uh, told me when I was sleeping 
that if, uh, and she's saying this to my mother, she says, you go to this town next to us, and if you go there right away, you will find food. And this was a series of dreams. I mean, uh, there were about four or five of them. Each one of them resulted in obtaining some food. So my mother went to this town, and this perfect stranger walks up to her, and he says, look, I got this bag of flour here, and it's spoiled, and I want to get rid of it. Do you want it? And my mother said, sure. She brought it home. It was inspected very carefully. There was nothing wrong with that flower. So this was, again, perceived by my family as another miracle. You know, this was something that, you know, was miraculous. Um, she was a very, my grandmother was a very, um, what would I say, intuitive, uh, spiritual person. And sometimes she would know things or talk about things that, that we had no idea where she was getting it from. Uh, like those dreams. I, you know, as a result of that, you know, the dreams that my grandmother would tell us, uh, I have developed a, a whole area of my expertise. So I work with a lot of patients uh, using their dreams. I, I very often see it as a shortcut, you know, so it might take six months to accomplish something with a particular patient. And if they would bring me their dreams every session I had with them, and we would talk about those dreams, try to understand them, uh, you can usually accomplish as much in three or four months. So dreams are in a very important way of looking into your inner self, your subconscious, your soul. Certainly Jung, Jung believed that. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, of Definitely. course. Yeah. Of course. And I, I, I've had some amazing dreams in my own life that were very useful and very helpful in my own life. Like? Well, let me think. Okay. Uh, there was an organization that I considered joining. Um, Anthroposophical Society. I yes. don't know if you've heard of them. Yes. Steiner. Rudolf Steiner, Steiner. Yes. and I knew a lot of Steiner people, and I went to some of their presentations and lectures, and I studied Steiner for quite a while. I was fascinated with some of the things he taught, and but I am not a joiner. I've always been against. I'm not a joiner. I've never joined any psychological organization or any political party. I just don't join. <laughs> I have this philosophy that if you if you join something then you are put into a box. Now you have to believe what they believe, and it's sort of, uh, you lose some of your own free thinking. Yes. So anyways, so I'm debating in my own mind whether I should join this anthroposophical society because they're all encouraging me to do that. Yes. I'm driving to work in the morning, and a car in front of me, the license plate says Steiner, spelled correctly. And I thought, hmm, that's an interesting message. <laughs> And I joined the Anthroposophical Society, and I was a member of it for several years. Learned a great deal of important things from them. Interesting. Uh, Going back to your work with patients, there was one, uh, Nancy, the mental patient you worked with, and she was someone that was, you know, kind of really, f she was out there. Talk about Nancy. Let's see. She's the one who would talk nonsense most of the time. Yes. That was an interesting... Uh, I was using this as an example of how important it is to listen to somebody. A lot of the stories in the book are uh, ways of communicating an idea. And so here's a patient who probably, if you listen to her, 98% uh, of what she said was probably nonsense. Didn't make any sense whatsoever. We, we used to call it as word salads. Uh, and what I tried to do is really pay attention to her. But I noticed that nobody paid attention to her. Because she talked that way, 
No one would listen to her. No one would pay attention to her. She was pretty much ignored by everybody. I decided to get together with her almost every day, and I would just sit there and listen to her, listen really intently. And if she said something that made sense, I would pick it up immediately, and I would throw it back at her. I would say something like, oh, so your sister worked as a waitress, is that right? And then I would continue listening. Every time she said something that made sense, I would throw it back at her, make her aware that I heard it. The result was that with time, what she was saying to me made more and more sense. She was responding to the attention. Here somebody was finally listening to her, and she realized that what I was listening to was mostly things that made sense. So she started making more and more sense. In a matter of a few months, she most of the things she said made sense. She made a very quick recover because all of a sudden people were paying more attention to her. Yes. She was getting more attention. She was given more privileges. She was more getting more recognition. And so this is an example how uh, in therapy or counseling or in any attempts to help other people, really, really listening to somebody and then letting them know that you heard them is maybe the most important gift you can give to somebody. A lot of people think that when somebody's in trouble that you have to give them ideas or suggestions or something. Actually, I believe, after some 40 years of working in this field, that probably really listening to somebody and then sharing with them your understanding of what you have heard is probably the most important help you can offer somebody. Feeling understood is a great desire that we all have. Uh, I think if you really talk to people, you realize that uh, the people that are the most important to you in your life, whether it's your wife or your best friend, are people that understand you. Being understood is a wonderful thing, and that's a gift we can give to anybody. Uh, You talked about uh, it is important, no question about it, and I'm thinking of Oliver Sacks' work. very similar. Yes. Very similar yeah. that of listening and yeah. and beating back. And it's active, active listening. Yes. Listening with intensity, like intense listening. You talked about there was selective listening, attentive listening, and empathetic listening. So can you talk about those three areas? So selective listening is? Well, this is where you, you listen to some of the things and you uh, basically... Um, are thinking already what you're going to say in response. So you don't really pay that much attention to it. Um, If you repeat back to what the other person says, it really does not indicate that you you heard them. The parrot can do that. Uh, What the best form of listening, the highest level of listening, is where you not only listen to what the person is saying, but you also listen to the feelings. This is where the empathy comes in. Most people feel understood not because of your philosophy or your message. Most people feel understood because they'll say, he understands how I feel. Yes. So being able to understand somebody's feeling. So when you listen to somebody who's upset, somebody who's hurting, somebody's unhappy, and you pick up the feelings, and then you let them know that you understand this, you are very upset about what has just happened, or you're very angry because of what has just happened. You're not just communicating what, you heard, but you're also communicating the feelings. Yes. So that's that's the skill of a good therapist. And if you do this repeatedly, 
what you will get as a result is that somebody will let you know, you know, you really understand me. You know, I, I've, the highest compliment any patient has ever paid me was to say to me, you know, Andy, I've had so many therapists in my life. I've been in therapy for most of my life, but you are the first therapist that really understands me. Now, that's, that's, a, that's the highest compliment any therapist can get. Yes. Uh, and this led to, like, you know, like, listening is one thing. Um, hearing is another. And so it's like we have to move beyond hearing to listening. Yes. And so you have some principles for doing that. Uh, establishing eye contact uh, is important. Pay attention to verbal clues. Don't judge. Don't judge. Ask yes. questions. Yes. Initiate touch. Recognize emotions. These are all really important, right? Every one of them. Yes, every one of them. And those are the kind of things that good therapists have learned and have practiced. Uh, even posture, how you sit when you're talking to somebody. When you lean forward, that tends to communicate more attention. When you lean back, it tends to communicate less attention. So he's moving back from the microphone and coming forward to the microphone. That's, yeah, right. So we're getting it. We're getting it. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, it, it's been said that when you communicate with someone, uh, something like 90% of the communication is nonverbal. Yes. That only about 10% of what a person receives is the actual words, that uh, most of it is nonverbal. And this is where you, you, you look at somebody who's talking to you and you realize that what you're what they're saying to you doesn't mean anything because their body language and all the other things say the opposite like somebody who will yell at you that they're not angry but their voice sounds angry yes right <laughs> of course yeah. yeah i think everyone that's listening is familiar yeah. with have had this those experiences yeah. of when someone is really there with you and yeah. or they're not there with you that's right yeah and and this guys it's amazing how this happens i mean not only in face to face but also just on the telephone, uh, this kind of thing, and now of course we're getting into these all these technologies, you know, with cell phones and yeah. Twitter and Facebook, and I have a lot of trouble with that. The whole other <laughs> level of you know yeah, communicating that's yeah. quite beyond what we're talking about in some ways. It becomes more and more difficult to have real communication. It's sort of pseudo communication. Yes. Um, so we're going to continue with uh, discovering what real communication is about with our guest, Andrew Biankowski, the author, along with Mary Akers, of One Life to Give, A Path to Finding Yourself by Helping Others. And the website is onelifetogive.net, onelifetogive.net. You can also get there through New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. My name is Michael Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. My guest is Andrew Biankowski, and 
We're talking about One Life to Give, A Path to Finding Yourself by Helping Others, a book that he put together with Mary Akers. And one of the chapters deals with Nikon, gratefulness. And and this is important because really it has to do with the blessings we've received and how how because all of us stand on the shoulders mm-hmm. of the generations that have gone before us. Let's talk about that. Yeah, this is a, an interesting approach to psychology. Apparently in Japan, uh, there's a great deal of emphasis placed on gratitude. This is a mainstream of their therapy, psychology. And they learned most of that stuff from Greg Crutch, who has written uh, quite extensively on the topic of uh, Nikon, Japanese psychology. And basically what we learned, I spent a whole weekend focusing on that, how all of us, if we focus on those things that we uh, are grateful for, those things that other people have done for us, uh, that all of a sudden our whole attitude changes. The whole idea of you, you get so overwhelmed with gratitude for everything that other people have done for you all your life that it almost becomes automatic that you want to somehow pass it forward, move it forward, pay it, pay it forward. Um, I, for example, we spend uh, maybe two hours sitting down, each one of us under a tree, uh, thinking about all the things that your mother did for you when you were a child. How many diapers did she wash? How many times did she feed you? How many meals did she prepare for you? And if you list it all in terms of actual numbers, you become overwhelmed with gratitude. Your friends, your wife, uh, people who... Uh, made the coffee that you drank this morning, the person who who fixed the road that you were driving on, the people, the people who built this house you're living in. So there's like incredible amount of gratitude that can become so overwhelming that you, you it becomes almost automatic to want to do something for others instead of passing it forward. Uh, instead of paying back to the person that you're grateful to, you move it forward. Um, paying it forward. Yeah, paying it forward. Yes. Yeah. So that's that was a very important lesson for me. I've always felt that gratitude was important, but uh, one needs to work on it, cultivate it. Uh, almost, they they suggest that almost every day, you at the end of the day, you need to think about what what am I grateful for today? What has what have other people done for me today that I need to be grateful for? It's almost the opposite of this concept of entitlement, where so many people feel that they're entitled to all these things, all these things that other people do for me. I'm entitled to that. Uh, gratitude is really the opposite of that. Yeah. The, uh, it's like human human beings, infants, a human infant, um, if it isn't taken care of, if it isn't loved and held and, and nurtured, um, or at least the first two years, it'll die. Yes. It won't live. This actually happened in England during World War II, where a lot of children ended up in these orphanages, and because they weren't held, they weren't cuddled, they weren't touched, uh, even with the best food and best physical care, a lot of them died. A human being needs love, needs touching, needs... needs, um, And, you know, and the fact that each one of us is alive today... I mean, you think about just that. We're yes. alive today because of all the other things that people have done for us. Yes. Yeah. You see, I think one of your titles, mm. Love is the Opposite of Fear. That's a basic concept, you know, in some of the 
modern approaches in psychotherapy that fear is probably the most harmful thing that you can experience. And so if you recognize that fear is the most harmful and that by overcoming fear, by diminishing the fear, by letting go of fear, you can then move in the opposite direction. You can then become a more loving human being. So very often when I work with patients, this becomes a, a kind of a continuum. On one extreme is the fear, on the other extreme is love. The more you let go of fear, the more loving you can be. And that becomes a desirable goal. I want to be a more loving human being. I want to be more motivated by love and less motivated by fear. One of your chapters, uh, uh, Sense of Humor Can Save Your Life, uh, Importance of Humor. There's a, I want to say that each of the chapters in the book to their listeners that begins with a wonderful quote from someone that you'll recognize. And this happens to come from George Bernard Shaw. Life does not cease to be funny when people die any more than it ceases to be serious when people laugh. <laughs> That's great. I love that quote. That's why we put it on the front of the page. Yes. Uh, yeah. And I think a good example of this, since I'm, I'm from Europe, and I still have retained a lot of the European way of thinking. In Europe, there's a tradition of gallows humor. So when people are being exterminated, when they're being defeated, when they are uh, being conquered, uh, they make jokes about it. They survive, they try to survive, and they have a better uh, better chance of survival by using humor. So, for example, the Jews, when they were exterminated in Germany, uh, their favorite jokes were about Hitler. And I think there's a joke in there, one of those jokes, uh, maybe I could tell you, because it's really, I heard this from a man who actually survived, a, Jew, a Jewish man who survived the Nazi concentration camp. And he says that here's a joke that the Germans used to say in Germany. Uh, this is how it goes. There's these two German, there's these two guys, two Jewish men who live in this house. And they notice that every day Hitler walks by their house. And so they said, hey, why don't we put this big rock on top of the house? And when he walks by tomorrow morning at eight, we'll just drop this rock on his head and kill him. So they did that. They hold this big rock on top of the house. Next morning, they're sitting there waiting for Hitler to go by. He doesn't go by. Nine o'clock, he doesn't go by. Ten o'clock, he's not by. He's not, he hasn't gone by yet. So finally, one of them says to the other, I hope he's all right. <laughs> <laughs> you have to say this was a Jewish accent. I have a, I have a friend who is Jewish, and he, he can tell this joke with a Jewish accent. I... <laughs> He also referred. He also uh, quote uh, the Danish American pianist and humorist Victor Borga, who was so great. A smile is the shortest distance between two people. Yes, that's that's uh, a good quote. I like that. Uh, yeah. the, uh, in in therapy, you know, again, I've spent most of my life doing psychotherapy, and I've learned that those therapists that have a good sense of humor, who can make a patient laugh, are usually more successful. When when I can make you laugh you become more open to ideas. What I say to you is going to be more likely received. It's going to, the, the defenses are down. So uh, by laughing and introducing humor into therapy, into the whole helping profession, uh, you can be a lot more successful. So I, I really cultivate that. So I'm, I'm wondering, uh, from, from your point of view uh, and your perspective, uh, what does the future hold for you, Andrew? Uh, 
future. Hey, I'm 75 years old. I don't know how much future I got left. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're doing pretty I really, well. I, uh, I'm you doing a lot of teaching. To me. I'm doing a lot of teaching. I, um, I'm still writing. Um, I still have some patients that I see occasionally I have a very, very small private practice. I'm a mentor. There are some people who are therapists or counselors, and I see them on a regular basis as a mentor. Uh, but talking about age, uh, I recently did a presentation to a senior citizen group. Now, this is a group that, that's called 55 and over. There are 55 and over, and there were about 50 of them now. And we had a wonderful time. We talked about the book, and I had some great food. And at the end of this, they invited me to join their group. They said, you know, you're a senior citizen. You know, why don't you join our group? You know, we'd love to have you as a member of this group. And what I said to them, I think went over their head. I don't think they saw the humor. I was trying to be funny. I said to them, well, you know, I'm 75. So I'm looking for a group that's 75 and over. You are 55 and over, so you're much too young for me. I mean, you're, you're like children. I'm looking for a more mature group. So if you know of any group that's 75 and over, let me know, because that's, that's what I'm looking for. Well, I don't think they saw the humor. In it. <laughs> they missed it. Huh? They missed it. One of the things you referred, the person you referred to, and it's so, I think, so expressive of your your story in Siberia. It's like Camus, uh, Albert Camus, the French existentialist, in the midst of winter, I found there was within me an invincible summer. I can remember, you know, I think when, when I picked that particular quote, I could remember, I was thinking of a specific incident in Siberia. Now, here we are, we're starving, we have no food, there were, sometimes we didn't have any food for two or three days, so we were very close to dying of starvation. And this is a beautiful summer. There are flowers, the birds are singing, and I'm sitting out there in this open field away from anybody, and I'm completely overwhelmed with this wonderful feeling how beautiful the world is. You know, and you know, so in the middle of this suffering and this terrible situation, I was completely overwhelmed with a sense of beauty and awe. Um, Blessing. Yeah, yeah, and I, I think that this is something that uh, a lot of people don't realize that um, we, we we place too much emphasis, I think, in this culture on materialism, material possessions. And when I look back on my life, seventy-five years of my life. I can remember so many wealthy people who were very unhappy, and I can remember so many very poor people who were very happy. Andrew, it's been great speaking with you. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you for inviting me. I've enjoyed this. <laughs> I've been speaking with Andrew Biankowski. He's the author, with Mary Akers, of One Life to Give, A Path to Finding Yourself by Helping Others. And the book is published by The Experiment, and it's available in paperback. Uh, wherever you go. And it's also been published in a number of different languages as well, which is, uh, I think, Polish and German. And, uh, it's about ready to be published in French. And it was also published in Australia. So if you'd like to find out more information about the work of Andrew, uh, you can go to the website, and that is onelifetogive.net, 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 and you can write uh, or you can go to the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org, and if you want to be in contact with directly with Andrew, you can write to him at Post Office Box 277, Elma, New York. That's Post Office Box 277, Elma, E-L-M-A, New York, 
1-404-1059. My name is Michael Toms, and you've been listening to New Dimensions. This is program number 3350. New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You, too, can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. You can also subscribe to our free weekly podcasts and find over a thousand hours of audio dialogues in our searchable archive. New Dimensions is produced by New Dimensions Radio in Santa Rosa, California, USA. Our executive producer is Justine Willis-Toms. Our post-production editor is Lou Judson. For over four decades, New Dimensions has been producing weekly conversations at the leading edge. We sincerely thank all of you who have supported us by being members of Friends of New Dimensions as well as members of our affiliate stations. My name is Dan Drayson. On behalf of everyone at New Dimensions whose endeavors make this program possible, I'm wishing you well. New Dimensions Radio is an independent producer supported by listener contributions. To find out more about the program you've just heard, to subscribe to our free weekly newsletter and our New Dimensions and New Dimensions Cafe podcasts, and to access thousands of other programs in the New Dimensions archive, please visit our website, newdimensions.org. That's newdimensions.org. Or call us at 707-468-5215. That's 707-468-5215. Please join us next time as we explore New Dimensions.